0: I was a fan before I became a scholar of sport. I was a sports fan. And I was a cricket fan in particular. And uh, Jeff mentioned my, my love for my family. And I had an uncle, my mother's brother, who was born with a deformed right hand. And had, it, had he had two normal hands, he would have played cricket for India. You know, He was a Rundi Trophy Reserve, he ran uh, one of Bangalore's best first division clubs for many years. He played alongside test cricketers for his university team. Uh, but this tragic physical deformity uh, meant that he couldn't progress to the highest level. And then ca- I came along, his favourite sister's only child, he, uh, only son. He had no children of his own. And as a little boy of four, uh, he came to visit us when I was four, and he claims he saw me bowl a leg break and then a googly in quick succession. Now I think this is completely appropriate, But then he said, "I'm going to make this lad a test Uh, So, I was really the vehicle of his uh, tragically unfulfilled ambitions. But I'm grateful for uh, my uncle's support, encouragement, inspiration because it drew me to a love of cricket. Uh, I played reasonable cricket. I played what you would call second-class cricket. I played for the best college team in India. I played for my school team. I played for my club in Mangalore. But I kind of knew I wouldn't make it beyond uh, that my uncle's dreams would be unfulfilled. Of course, later on, there were other people in his club who played for India and played for Karnataka. But I kind of let him down. But he got me to cricket. And I, my father also encouraged me, essentially through buying me books on cricket. And one of the first books he bought me was a book by uh, a Yorkshire writer called A.A. A. Thompson. Some of you would have read his works. Of course, he was not as famous as Cardiff and Robinson and Arlott. And the book was called Cricket Bouquet. And it's a book about the seven what were then seventeen English first-class counties. Uh, about the cricketing character of each of these counties, profiles of some of the great players, count each county had produced, ending with an all-time 11. Now, that book encouraged me to find a county of my own to follow. Rather, a Ranji trophy team of my own to follow. And I was born uh, so my family comes from South India, I was born and raised in the American foothills. And the local team, Uttar Pradesh, was the worst team in the worst zone. So like a fan, I was clever, I was not going to follow them. <laughs> I adopted Karnataka, and, uh, which is the state of which Bangalore is the capital where I now live. And uh, my uh, 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 opportunistic choice was recently rewarded, when in 1974, when I was 16, Karnataka won the Ranji Trophy for the first time beating Bombay who had won the tournament for the last 15 years at that stage uh, all through my life uh, I was in 15 and a half Bombay had been Ranji Trophy champions and I saw the match in which they were dethroned and I've written about it at Some length elsewhere, so I won't summarize it except to say That as a historian I've written about many things as Jeff said I've written about Indian democracy I've written about Gandhi uh, I've written about the British Empire, but the only moment of history I watched unfold before my eyes was when my beloved Karnataka beat my detested, uh, beat my detested Bombay in the rugby Trophy. So I grew up loving cricket. Then I went to Calcutta to do a PhD in sociology. And this is 1980, 81, uh, you know, the Soviet Empire was still very much alive. West Bengal, of which Calcutta was the capital, was ruled by a Marxist government. My teachers were Marxists and uh, one of them convinced me that cricket was a bourgeois deviation from the class struggle. So I gave up watching cricket and gave up my cricket library. Uh, For a couple of years uh, down the road, I was disenchanted with Marxism because I had become deeply interested in uh, the environmental movement in India. Mr. Marxist also thought was a bourgeois deviation from the past. But I refused to accept his diagnosis. I could clearly see this is going to be a major uh, uh, crisis for India and for humanity. Our abuse of our natural world. So uh, I, through a long deviation, returned to cricket as well. So, that's how that's about my early love for cricket. I should say a little bit now about how I became a cricket writer. Which is also an accident. It's an accident of my own personal journey. In 1986, I, after I finished my PhD, I got a job teaching for a couple of years in the United, in that uh, what was then a largely cricket-benighted land, the United States of America. And my friends were watching baseball, but I couldn't take to it because it really is an extremely crude form of cricket. There's no, uh, there's no even. There's no even competition between bat and ball. It's all about the pitcher's skill. The pitcher is on song. The batter can do nothing at all. And of course, my American friends used to glory in the fielding. But with that mitt, I mean, having fielded in the cold daily winter at first slip with no, no gloves. And of course, a short leg in those days with, with no helmet and no guards either. I wasn't impressed by the fielding. Now, the year I was in America, 1986-87, that was the year of the second tight test played between India and Australia in Madras. And that summer, <coughs> India beat England in a test series for only the second time in England, under couple days. And in those days, there was no internet. The results of these matches came to my university library via Indian newspapers in the post, two or three weeks later. Then came the winter, which was desperately cold. And I was incredibly lonely I had cooped up in my flat with the snow outside. I began bouncing a tennis ball and trying to go off bricks against the wall. And of course, uh, an American neighbor came up from downstairs and said my wife can't sleep and so on. And I couldn't sleep either by that time. So I started thinking up, remembering my early days of reading A. Thompson, I started thinking up all-time 11s of Indian first-class teams. So that was kind of my consolation with no cricket to watch or play. In the United States of America and after I came back I wrote a short book about <coughs> the really model of a. A. Thompson about the culture the cricketing culture of different states of India Rundi Trophy states of India and this was based essentially on my memories of watching matches memories of stories uh, or memories of older people like my uncle who had told me, you know, his recollections about anti-trophy matches he'd watched, and of course books and newspapers—not newspapers at newspapers that stage—really books and order, biographies, and I wrote a book based on this, based on these really non-academic sources, mostly oral history sources and anecdotal sources, uh, you know, uh, often apocryphal, and it was called *Wickets in the East* and *Anecdotal History*. Now, I don't think. You know, you could get a university job with a book with a subtitle, an anecdotal history. But that's what it really was. It was an anecdotal history. Uh, And my partisanship for Karnataka shone through, or I should rather say, disfigured the whole book. And one reviewer, uh, now a very well known Indian television journalist, Rajiv Sardesai, said in his review uh, that Guha's partisanship for Karnataka. Aguha's excessive love for Karnataka will cause another Kaveri dispute. The Kaveri dispute is about the sharing of waters between Karnataka and a downstream state called Tamil Nadu, which has been a bloody dispute leading to riots. And this was the remark about my love for Karnataka that is going to cause another Kaveri dispute. So that was my first book. Completely and totally a fan's book. Then in 1992, meanwhile I was writing you know, more... Uh, non-sporting, I'd become a professional historian, I was work writing works on environmental history. And in 1992, uh, there was a tragic incident in um, uh, India where a mosque was demolished and there were Hindu-Muslim riots in which seven thousand people perished. And I went into a period of deep depression and I could not do my academic work. And I came out of depression by writing about cricket. And I wrote about the heroes of my youth, um, people like, bowlers like Bedi, Prasanna, and the <coughs> Batsmen like G.R. Vishwanath and Sunil Gavaskar, uh, whiskey keepers like Farooq Angelia, and I wrote a book about what I called Indian Cricket's Coming of Age. The title was Spin and Other Turns, Indian Cricket's Coming of Age. So I've written these two fans' books on cricket, which have been noticed, and then I was offered a column in a well known newspaper in South India called The Hindu, uh, a fortnightly column on cricket. And it was unabashedly a fans' column. There was nothing remotely scholarly or analytical about what I wrote, and through the 90s, I had two parallel careers that I was a social historian and a cricket writer. I was writing massively footnoted academic books and essays, on mostly on environmental subjects, but also on politics by this time, uh, during the week, and I was writing fans' essays on cricket and cricketers during the weekend. And I proudly proclaimed in print that these two would never meet. <laughs> and in my book, Spin and Other Turns, which was published in 1995, the author's bio note said, you know, it had some it said things like, I think it said, I'm speaking from memory, but it says something like, uh, uh, Ramachandra Guha once shook hands with G.R. Vishwanath and twice bowled in the next to Mohinda Ramanath. And then it ended by saying, he writes on history to make a living, and on cricket to live. <laughs> well, I was very rather pleased with that line, and I thought, you know, this is, these are my two parallel careers, and of course, uh, 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 they had been precedents, the great historian E.P. Tom, uh, 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 Eric Hobsbawm, wrote on jazz at night, was a student, you know, so he, he, I don't remember my name, I think I was, I think I was more daring than uh, Eric Hobsbawm. <laughs> Eric Hobsbawm <laughs> didn't really want to put his academic job, back by, by, at actress, but I, like him, I was going to keep these absolutely separate. But then, <clears throat> but then uh, they came together. And I'm now going to talk in the second part of my lecture on how I became a sports historian, how my professional career as a social historian and my uh, writing life as a cricket fan uh, merged. Uh, through a series of accidents. And there were three discrete but unconnected events that made a cricket writer into a sports historian. And I'll just say a little bit about each of these three events. The first had to do with a book attacking a quite remarkable Indian scholar and reformer called B.R. Ambedkar. apart from the Indians in this room, uh, the rest would not really know very much about him. So I said, say something about him. He was born in an untouchable home, Ambedkar, uh, in, in circumstances of great deprivation. And purely through his struggle, his drive, and his intellect, he became a great scholar, lawyer. He took doctoral degrees in Columbia and the LSE. He was a major figure in the Bombay Bar. He entered politics, uh, trying to uh, organize his fellow untouchables, and he entered politics in opposition to Mahatma Gandhi and the Congress party, which is an incredibly courageous thing to do because Gandhi was the acknowledged leader of the freedom struggle in the 1920s and 30s. Gandhi had also made the abolition of untouchability a plank of his program, but Gandhi himself was upper caste. And Ambedkar said, upper caste leaders like Gandhi have no understanding of our sufferings, uh, our deprivation and what we really need, and I am going to oppose him. And he was much younger than Gandhi, he was 23 years younger than Gandhi, but it took you know, extraordinary courage and self-belief, uh, which he had shown, of course, all his life by coming out of a, uh, you know, home of an ordinary soldier, untouchable soldier, to get these doctoral degrees in two of the great universities of the world. Uh, and so through the 30s and 40s, he and Gandhi were antagonists. Uh, then there was a kind of reconciliation in the late 40s and he was brought into the cabinet of the uh, of Free India and then he helped tried the Indian constitution and so on. So absolutely extraordinary. I mean, next to lead to Gandhi in, um, uh, uh, in his transformative impact on India and the world. And was I uh, 10 years younger, I would now, after having finished with Gandhi, write on a makeup. But I think I'm too old to spend, because he deserves, you know, uh, <coughs> if anyone was to do serious work on a you know, he deserves the same kind of attention. Uh, that uh, someone like me had given to Gandhi. So anyway, so here is Ambedkar uh, who is still alive in Indian public discourse many years after his death, as is true with great historical figures like Churchill, Atlee, Washington, Lincoln, and so on. And there was a book attacking Ambedkar published by a very prominent Indian journalist, uh, essentially saying, um, how dare uh, he have the gall to call Gandhi names. Did he know all that Gandhi had done for our country? Who is this interloper? And why are people worshipping him? And the book was called Worshipping False Gods because Ambedkar had become an icon for the untouchables in contemporary India and this journalist wanted to demolish Ambedkar. So he wrote this book and because I was a scholar of Gandhi I was, someone from the newspapers asked me to read it and write, you know, write a review of the book. And while... (coughs) Reading this rather notorious book on Ambedkar, uh, which had caused a big splash because of who the man was. You know, it's sort of a, um, if you can, he was a very important right wing journalist who had taken it upon himself to attack Ambedkar. So, while digging into this controversy, I read about uh, a debate that Gandhi and Ambedkar had had in the 1930s about affirmative action for untouchables, in which they had different positions, which were finally reconciled through an agreement called the Puna Pact. And while reading about the Puna Pact, I found that one of the signatories to this compromise, the compromise itself broke down, but to this compromise between Gandhi and Ambedkar was a man called Palwankar Balu. Now, I knew through my weekend research and reading and writing that Palwankar Balu was India's great, first great spin ball. He was a left arm spinner. He came uh, uh, to India, uh, to in this country as part of the first All India Tour in 1911. He got 150 wickets. Even though he was 36 years old, he was offered county contracts. So he was really a precursor of Mankad and Bedi and Ashwin and Chadeja and all of that. So I knew about that. But I said, hey, this guy was involved in negotiations between Gandhi and Ambedkar. What is going on? And I started digging deeper and I found that he was not just a great cricketer, but something of a public figure, which I'll come to. So that was the first accident, my finding that the first great Indian cricketer, and I say this advisedly, because Ranji was an English cricketer, Balu was totally homegrown, Ranji was a prince, Ambedkar was an untouchable. So I found that this man also had a political side, which puzzled and intrigued me. Then, uh, meanwhile, I was writing uh, uh, a a third fan's book on the history of the Bombay quadrangular and pedrangular. Now, this tournament ran from 1907 to 1945. Uh, It started well before India became a test-playing nation. It uh, uh, preceded the Ranji Trophy, India's premier first-class competition, by almost 30 years. It was the nursery of Indian cricket. Many of the first great Indian cricketers had cut their teeth playing in this tournament on the Bombay Madan, watched by crowds of 30 and 40,000 with uh, live radio coverage, uh, with all kinds of, uh, you know, great interest all over India. The teams were drawn from all over India and they were constituted on racial or religious lines. They were the Europeans, the Parsis, the Hindus and the Muslims. And uh, that's how they worked, so it was a quadrangular from 1912 to 1935. And then meanwhile, in uh, a very great Indian Christian batsman emerged called Vijay Samuel Hazare, who was later to captain India in the first test match he never won. And there was no place for Hazare anywhere because the Europeans wouldn't take a colored Christian. So a fifth team was added called The Rest, with the magnificent name of The Rest. So you had the Europeans who were already Christians, the Parsis, the Hindus, the Muslims, and the rest, which apart from Indian Christians like Vijay Hazare, included a couple of Sri Lankan Buddhist, Jews, Anglo-Indians, and so on and so forth. Right. So I was going to write a book on <coughs> on uh, the Bombay quadrangular, a cricketing book, because Wickets in the East was about the Ranji Trophy. And I thought, let me write a book about what happened before the Ranji Trophy. And, you know, what was the quality of the cricket? What were the what were the crowds saying? What were the stories about these cricketers? Uh, you know, people like CK Naidu, who was arguably India, India cricket's first great superstar. A um, celebrated hitter of sixes, uh, you know, uh, baseball decades before baseball had been invented. Uh, he came up through as uh, Bombay Quadrangular Vijay Merchant, the magnificent opening batsman. Meenu Mankar, India's greatest ever all rounder. So it was going to be a cricketing book about uh, you know these matches played, uh, <coughs> looking at uh, and reconstructing them through old newspapers. Now. My major source for this, what was intended to be a a cricketing history of the Bombay quadrangular, stroke pentangular, was a newspaper called the Bombay Chronicle, which covered these matches most avidly. And one day, I was in a research library in Delhi, looking at a microfilm of the Bombay Chronicle for the year 1913. And to just give you a sense, I mean, it was really, I mean, I shouldn't make too many Uh, comparisons which uh, uh, occasionally may be forced. But if you think of uh, the English Premier League before the season starts. So a few weeks before the season starts, the newspapers start reporting, you know, will Arsenal get a new manager, you know, "Their, uh, their full-back is injured, who's going to replace him, what's the transfer market like? So this is the kind of thing that used to happen with the Bombay Chronicle. The tournament started in November, but I would start looking at... The newspapers from September. And in October of 1913, I came across a report in the Bombay Chronicle felicitating a batsman called M.D. Pai, who had also been on the tour of England in 1911, for being chosen captain of the Hindu team. And the felicitation was by his caste association. He came from a caste of Brahmins called the Gaut Saraswats, and his caste association felicitated him. Being chosen captain, you know. Uh, So there was his report uh, of the felicitation, and it said that Mr. Pai remarked in his uh, own, uh, you know, he accepted the honor the community had done to him uh, by organizing this felicitation, but he would like to say that he was not the best qualified man to be the Hindu captain. It should really have been his senior and better and more experienced colleague, Mr. P. Balu, who should have been captain of the Hindu team. And by this time, I knew Balu was an untouchable, had been involved in the negotiations between Gandhi and Ambedkar. And I said, what the hell is going on? Uh, Has Virat Kohli ever said that somebody else is better suited to be captain of the Indian team? You know? Uh, uh, Does it ever happen in cricket that a person is appointed captain and say, I mean, even in a village game, you won't have a guy saying, you know, I'm not deserving, I'm the captain, is what he would say, right? So I was very puzzled by this. Now I realized there's a Hindi phrase, hai. there's something fishy going on here. <laughs> uh, it's got to do, it's got to do with the fact that Balu is a Brahmin, a reflective, self-reflective and guilt-ridden Brahmin who recognizes he's captain, uh, not just because he's a good cricketer, but because he's born in the highest caste. And Mr. Balu should have been captain, so with these two kind of uh, with this discovery of uh, balu 's political side and of course this extraordinary uh, news report tucked away in the Bombay Chronicle, which clearly said he 'd been deprived of captaincy because of his caste. Um, I began digging deeper into the history of the Bombay tournament. My two careers began to merge and mingle. I was <coughs> not just a social historian of the environment and politics in the weekdays and as cricket fan and cricket writer on the weekends, but I was gradually becoming a social historian of sport. And the outcome of this merger uh, was my book, A Corner of a Foreign Field, which um, Jeff has mentioned. Uh, And I suspect it's the principal reason why you've asked me to speak here today. Uh, That book, which was published exactly 20 years ago this summer, so I shall not attempt to summarize that book or what it argues, but in the next part of my presentation, the next uh, uh, concluding part of my presentation, flags some uh, issues of broader interest for historians uh, that emerge from the research and writing of that book. you know some lessons I learned which may be of broader validity for our tribe of sports historians. The first, of course, is the story of Balu and his brothers? Why was it forgotten? You know, he was absolutely the first great individual. Uh, he was a major public figure. Uh, he, I should say, before I go on to a little more about about Balu, uh, uh, so f- his struggle was heroic. So to begin with, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a groundsman in a European club and he would bowl in the nets and uh, to a famous Hampshire batsman called J.G. Gregg who was posted in Pula. Word of his prowess got to the Hindu team across the river and they said okay you come and play with us but you can't have tea with us uh, because of your caste you know because rules of purity and pollution are extremely strict and caste is in some ways an even more rigid system of social stratification than race (laughs) and untouchables are totally outside the pale but that the Hindus wanted his ability to get wickets without his companionship of the field. Uh, he moves to Bombay, uh, continues to take wickets, he's never made captain. Uh, then there's a struggle to make him captain by some liberal minded Hindus, it fails. Uh, in 1919, uh, MD Pai, the same MD Pai, is injured, so can't play. Balu should be captain in 1920. He's not made captain and his two brothers, who are outstanding cricketers, Vithal and Shivaram, who were both on the 1911 tour, go on strike. And they issue a fantastic statement, which is reproduced in my book, in the Bombay Chronicle as to why they're striking on a matter of principle. Because caste and colour should have no place in the cricket field, and the finest cricketer has been denied the honour of captaincy, who just incidentally happened to be their brother. Now, by this time, himself is 45, he retires shortly afterwards. And in 1923, by which time Gandhi has returned to India, has made the abolition of untouchability a central bank of the freedom struggle, uh, there is now a campaign to make Balu's younger brother, Vichal, captain of the team, which succeeds. And in 1923, in this, it's almost a fairy tale ending, in 1923 there's a final, the Hindus against the Europeans, the ruling race. The Hindus win, Vichal gets a century, and as the news reports say, he's carried on the shoulders of upper caste Hindus shouting, Mahatma Gandhi ki jai, glory to Mahatma Gandhi. Now. So Gandhi really, really plays a role, Gandhi's social reform movement, plays a role in the belated recognition of the cricketing genius of the Palawankar brothers. But so I suspect that the fact that Vithal, uh, a minor role is also played by the fact that Vithal is a batsman and not a bowler, and there's a pernicious and long-standing prejudice against bowlers being made captains of teams, right, which is why Shane Maughan was never captain of Australia. They done a much better job than Ricky Ponting. Take it from me. <laughs> <laughs> now, so anyway, so here uh, this is story of uh, this extraordinary story of these untouchable brothers who are forgotten, and why are they forgotten? You know, why did it take uh, <coughs> decades to stumble upon their their journey, their their social journey, journey, not just their their sporting journey, and this is decades before uh, this is decades before. Uh, <coughs> Jackie Robinson that he breaks in, you know. So he's really a precursor to Jackie Robinson, but there's no stadium about him, there's no film about him. There's an obscure lane in central Bombay, which is still called the Tata Press Road and not the P. Balu Road. So, it was forgotten, really, uh, till my book, A Corner of Foreign Field. And why such? I'm sure, you know, there are characters, you know, of course, female cricketers in this country, Aboriginal cricketers in Australia, black sportsmen all over. You know, uh, people from the Pacific who may have been pioneers in uh, different sports in which New Zealand excelled and so on. And it's an interesting subject. I mean, to recover these forgotten heroes who are not just, as I said, not just sporting heroes, but social and political heroes. In the case of Parvanka Balu, uh, the, uh, the neglect of Balu had to do a lot with what I uh, term. <coughs> the ramayana model of his indian history writing the ramayana is a great epic and it has one hero ram who towers over everything else you know and of course uh, indians are peculiarly prone to the culture of personality as witness what's happening in indian politics today there's only one great indian allegedly today that's our prime minister no one else and before that it you was know, indira gandhi before that Nehru. so they kind of a ramayana model of 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 hero worship in which there's one sun around which everything else revol- resol- revolves, doesn't Because the sun uh, cast shade on everyone else. Everyone else is obscured by darkness. There's just one great hero. And that's how the history of the freedom struggle was written, with Gandhi as the Ram. Then you had the history of uh, the untouchable struggle with Ambedkar as that one great figure. And all other remarkable untouchable leaders, thinkers, sports people, reformers, were ignored and neglected. So I think that's partly the reason. Uh, so it, it gave me a sense of of course, this part, I mean, I spent my early life uh, as a historian of peasants and of the underclass, and really looking at people who had, were marginalized by history writers in different ways. But it's quite, quite striking to me that someone uh, who was as great a cricketer as Balu, and who has, whose journey uh, mirrored uh, the anxieties, the troubles, the conflicts of Indian society uh, in, under colonialism had been completely ignored. So that's one uh, kind of larger thought I wanted to leave with you. I mean, it's really a, I think it's it's very exciting for historians when they discover, you know, trends, themes, personalities, uh, events, controversies, institutions that have been totally and completely ignored uh, by their peers. The second uh, broader theme I want to flag is a, uh, the vital importance of newspapers as a primary source in writing sports history. And the Bombay Chronicle was indispensable to my work. It was a nationalist newspaper. I also used the Establishment Oriented Times of India. I used Marathi newspapers. I don't know the language, but I got a research assistant to translate Marathi newspapers. And this is, of course, uh, a lesson many of you know. Many of you read, use newspapers in your work. But it really helped me in my career as a Political and social historian outside sport, because mainstream Indian historians did not use newspapers. They used essentially the public archive, the government archive. And in my later work on Gandhi, my two-volume biography of Gandhi, I was able to, it's, I was able to make really extensive and, I believe, rich and illuminating use of newspapers. Because essentially, you know, uh, in this country too, you know, mainstream political historians. It is, you know, the House of Commons, the British Library, the National Archives at queue, you know, the papers of Prime Ministers and so on. And you, now you have a new wave of historians, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, people like David Kiniston and so on, who are using newspapers more intelligently. But in my country, uh, political and social historians have really not used newspapers. And I was grateful for my experience writing a column of Hortonfield writing about cricket, because when I went back to political and social history, I was able to see what the newspapers could tell me. The last issue, uh, which I'd like to flag, and then I have a few uh, (coughs) concluding remarks and then I'll be done, uh, has to do with, you know, um, the book itself, uh, how it brought together my two careers. Now, as it turns out, I have, I don't have a degree in history. I've never formally studied history in my life. For the last time I was taught history was when I was 11 in 6th grade. I did high science in high school, I did two degrees in economics, and then I did a PhD in sociology. So I came to history from the outside. And I'm particularly proud of a column of foreign field because it actually brings together my training as a sociologist with my research as a historian, with my love for cricket as a friend. And the organizing categories of that book, which emerged in the research and the writing, tell you that it's a work of a sociologist trying to be a historian. Uh, the four um, four master categories of the book, which are also the titles of the four chronological sections of the book, are race, caste, religion and nation. So race, which is to do with empire, the British coming in, bringing sport, Indians taking to it, caste, which is a story essentially of the Palwankar Balu brothers and their struggles. Religion, how the sporting field becomes a theatre for conflict with Hindus and Muslims and Parsis. And of course, nation, which is post-independent India and what cricket means to Indian national identity. And I was, you know, uh, when the book came out and it had these four master categories, I was extremely pleased. I thought, you know, uh, it really brought together all three aspects of my life my training as a sociologist, my professional life as a historian working in the archives, and of course my love for cricket. But by the time the book was published, and a year or two later, I realised that my self-congratulation was premature. That I had these four categories, race, caste, religion, and nation. Uh, But the way Indian cricket was evolving, there should really have been a fifth section called the market. So by this time, you know, cricketers were emerging as the, as true superstars. Tendulkar, when my book was written, Tendulkar was more popular than Hindi film stars, which had not happened before. Uh, you know, there was a rivalry between Pepsi and Coke for the Indian market. Coke chose a film star, but Pepsi did better because they had Tendulkar. Right. So the market was becoming more and more important there a few years down the line you are the Indian Premier League so the whole story of India's economic liberalisation, globalisation, crony capitalism, you know, and fandom and its mixture of fandom so I should, should really have had a fifth category called the market. And uh, reflecting on the book now, uh, there should really be a sixth category called gender. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of um, essentially missing in my book partly because, uh, you know, uh, they because of my own orientation, perhaps, because of all the cricket I had watched and played and talked about was male. Uh, but this is also quite a substantially shifted in India, not just because of uh, our very fine women's cricket team, which has done su- ex- exceedingly well over the last seven or eight years, but also more and more women following cricket, you know, being part of spectatorship, partisanship, fandom, uh, writing. I mean, some are, some are absolutely our best sports writers are female. Uh, and, uh, and so I should really have had, I mean, four those four master categories. Really had to have a fifth and a sixth, and maybe a few years down the line there be a seventh and an eighth and a ninth. And what this tells you is that every work of historical scholarship is there to be superseded. You know, whatever we do is interim. There is no such thing as a definitive work of history. I mean, I detest that word uh, even applied to biographies. You know. They can't be. It's there for someone else to take your arguments a little further, d- deepen them, reject some of them, expand some of them, and so on and so forth. Now, a color of foreign field was itself not the first work of sports history set in India. Uh, though it's probably the best known, it's by no means the first. That honour of... Uh, pioneering sports history in india must go to the australian richard cashman whose book patrons players in the crowd published in 1978 is really opened up the field uh, it's gratefully acknowledged in my book uh, and there's many references to it though it deals with a later period my book really dealt with the colonial period his book really deals with the 50s and 60s but it's a very important and pioneering work of scholarship which i was grateful to be able to build upon and um, and now the field has been taken further and further. Uh, it's a rich and thriving field when it comes to India in this conference itself. There are two brilliant young historians presenting papers. So with Nahar's work, I've had the privilege of reading his book in, in proof. Uh, it's a much needed, um, provides a much needed cultural context to cricketing fandom. Uh, you know, not just social but cultural context to fandom. I was delighted when I had dinner with young Abhinav Goswami last night because I have long wished for a book on the social history of football in Calcutta. I mean, there's been too much written on the social history of cricket in Mumbai, and I think his work on the social history of uh, football in Calcutta, uh, I must look forward to. Between my work and the work of Swavik Nahar and Abhinav Goswami, is the remarkable work of Prashant Kidambi, who teaches uh, in this this town, uh, whose uh, award-winning book, Cricket Country, many of you would have read. So I look forward to these and other works in what has now become a thriving and important field of historical study in South Asia. Meanwhile, I myself have returned to Fender, And my last book, which uh, uh, Jeff mentioned, was a memoir of my life as a cricket fan. My next column, which will appear tomorrow in The Telegraph, is uh, about the joys of five-day cricket. I mean, in the last uh, three months, I watched two sections of two Lord's Tests and the final of the Ranji Trophy in Bangalore. So it's a book, it's, it's, you know, it's about real cricket played in whites with red balls. You know? uh, that's what it's about. And it starts by saying, I have never watched an IPL match in my life and I'm never shot. Okay. Now, so I have returned to cricketing fandom myself, but it's wonderful that this field is rich, thriving, uh, and I'm proud and privileged to be here today. And thank you so much for inviting me. And I really must thank more than any person alive, the spirit of Palwankar Balu, the great reformer and left arm spinner who made me a social historian of sport. Thank you.